0: Welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. We are live and ready to roll. Here we analyze politics, culture, and technology and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, humanities professor, your host and your guide. But without further delay, let's go ahead and get started. You know, the... Political art and the science of misleading, hiding, or distorting the truth is really, it's nothing new to politicians. As since there have been politicians, there has been deception to keep and gain control all the way back to, say, 1513. And there was a publication of this book uh, called The Prince by Machiavelli. And we see a dissertation of how those in power. They plan, they scheme, and they find manipulative ways to control the minds of the people. The fact is, you have been played, and so have I. Actually, every single one of us have been played and are being played daily, especially during election season. In our world, it's all about technology. You know, just as technology has made such amazing advances and and it's made so many things easier and better for us. It's also made the ability of politicians and political parties and I'm talking about both political parties to deceive us. It's made it even easier for them to attempt to manipulate our thought processes. So this podcast takes on the topic of political deception and our natural biases as I guarantee you all of us on both sides of the political persuasion have been used and manipulated by these tactics. You know, since I teach critical thinking and rhetoric, I'm, I'm amazed, I'm stunned, and oftentimes I'm amused. I, I laugh out loud at, at the brazen tactics politicians now deploy without any level of shame on a daily basis. So I thought I should break down... Just a small piece of this manipulation. So let's go ahead and start looking at this. Breaking news. It is election season. Some may be excited about this. Some don't care at all. And others, like me, I cringe in apprehension of what's to come. But uh, one very important aspect that burst on the scene in 2016, and it will surely have a massive impact on the election, is our use of digital media, news, and social media To convince us all which way to vote. This brings to the forefront the question of whether technology, our gadgets, computers, social media sites, they help improve our ability to make intelligent decisions, or whether the technology is actually making us more ignorant and more biased in regards to our decision making on who we elect to public office. You know, I would say, I would believe most of us, if not all of us, would say, oh, geez, this technology is making other people so stupid and ignorant. But me, I use it smart, and I'm not swayed by pandering, lying politicians. I surely know the difference. The problem is the, quote-unquote, other stupid people. So, in this podcast... I'm going to introduce to you three fascinating aspects of your brain and psychology that you are susceptible to. Actually, all of us are. And they are first, the illusion of confidence, which can lead to the second one, which is primacy bias. And we couple that with a rhetorical strategy called anchoring. And you and I have a recipe. For not making decisions based on critical or rational thought processes. So at the end of the podcast, there are actually some really simple things you can do in your own life to make sure you're avoiding the traps and biases of poor decision making. It can actually relieve a lot of stress of trying to understand and make sense of so much of what we see out there in the media and we see on the internet. Um, So I'm discussing these things in the realm of politics, but the same ideas apply to business or really any other aspect of your life. You know, I think we all like to believe we have the intuition ingrained in us to make the right decisions. But do we truly understand the tools that politicians are currently using to manipulate us? I think it's worth having a look at how dramatically technology is shaping political messages and, and how they're attempting to sway you. As a humanities professor, anymore there's hardly a, a topic outs, that I can look at that's outside the lens of technology. As, as you and I know, technology shapes nearly every single aspect of our lives daily, and this is becoming especially more and more true in politics. But before we get to the politics of it all, let's talk about your brain And technology, just in a general sense, when we are online, you know, research is showing us that by constantly distracting us, whether it would be sidebars, pop-ups, hyperlinks, instant messaging, uh, notifications, the internet undoubtedly is affecting our cognitive performance to concentrate and understand. Uh, Note I said cognitive performance, not reduction of your brain's gray matter from a biological destruction. Uh, This is actually a controversial subject in how we think and learn online. And it's one, obviously, working in higher education I've been following as it surely impacts students and and all of us at at whatever stage of life we're in. So I want to give a little side note here, the impacting of cognitive performance. It doesn't from online doesn't necessarily mean that the internet is eroding your brain, right? There there are studies ongoing if continual internet exposure is literally destroying our brain and our ability to think, but this is inconclusive as of yet. Uh, the first time we really heard of this, in an article, uh, Nicholas Carr published in The Atlantic, uh, about ten years ago now, and it received considerable attention. And basically the name of that article, and I'm sure you you can find it immediately. Is is Google making us stupid? Was the name of the article? Basically, the crux of his argument was he was blaming the internet for making him stupid and failing to retain information, as he believed his his brain was eroding and he couldn't remember stuff because he's spending too much time online and it was killing his brain. Well, this isn't proven true yet. Uh, Although it has not been proven true, it has not been proven not true either. So that's about the best we can say about that. But what what I want to focus on in this podcast is what has been almost definitively proven true. And it has been proven that we really struggle to focus and retain what we consume reading online. The average length of time we invest reading an online article or blog is 96 seconds. To say this isn't very long is an understatement of the year. We don't even spend two minutes, two minutes reading an article before we're moving on. How much detailed analysis on, say, I don't know, Trump's economic plan or Biden's coronavirus plan could you possibly absorb in 96 seconds? Well, probably not a whole lot. Fortunately for us, or more accurately, unfortunately, politicians understand our attention span is about as long as a gerbil. So generally, They don't give us much more detail than 96 second sound bites, blurbs, bullet points. The politicians know better than us that we lack the ability to go deeper, to question, to analyze. So they don't give us much more than bullet points or sound bites or ad hominem personal attacks of the other person. Since we lack the discipline and the focus to absorb more, we are fed soft baby food with a little spoon that we readily gulp down and internalize before we move on to the next. What do we end up absorbing, you may ask? Well, if we want to boil down the basic political message, uh, what we absorb tends to be me good, him bad, if we want to make it ridiculously simple. But Let's, for fun, break down some messaging from both parties. And I'll start with Trump's economic plan for you in a very unofficial way. I shall summarize it for you. Joe Biden is a socialist. He will destroy the economy. He will raise taxes till you have nothing left for yourself. Companies are bad for Joe Biden, and he really hates the American worker. You know he wants to send all American jobs to China. But don't worry, I'm good. I will make everything right with low taxes, no government intervention, and prosperity will reign supreme in the land. Remember, I had the best economy in the history of American economies. But if you elect Joe Biden, the world as we know it will end and our economy will be like Venezuela's and you will live on food stamps for the rest of your life. So, the end There's a summary of a Trump economic plan. Lest we leave out our friends on the left who might be chuckling and laughing and saying to themselves, oh, who would buy that ridiculous message? Typical Trump supporter. Let me recap Joe Biden's coronavirus plan. Of course, very unofficially for you. Donald Trump is a murderer. He hates old people and lets them die. Oh, and he hates wearing a mask too. Joe Biden uses science and data, which Donald Trump thinks is silly. Donald Trump uses his ego to make decisions, and Joe Biden will calm all fears and beat the virus. If you re-elect Donald Trump, the years of the European Great Plague shall return. Anarchy will reign supreme, but don't worry, Joe Biden has your back. And like the most steel-hearted superhero, he will swoop in. Calm will return to the land, and he will save us from the virus. I think you get the idea. I love the political ads. Uh, they're better than any telenovela, soap opera, drama, all within 30 to 90 seconds. Um, it's great comedy. But the topic is serious. The message, details, and analysis have been dumbed down so extreme to match the average attention span of the average online consumer that this is where we're at. This is not what an intellectual democracy is supposed to look like. If we are honest in this country, how many really even care to understand the details, even at a most basic level? Of economic plan or a coronavirus plan, we don't really have the will, the patience, the discipline to even attempt to dissect the issue deeply because most people have already determined an outcome without even knowing the entire story. It's dangerous to the basic function of a coherent system of government and should scare all of us. These publications of strategic plans we are hearing from both sides of the aisle. Please reconsider your position if you're thinking right now, oh, oh no, no, you, you missed it. My party, my candidate would never be so silly, simplistic, It's the other team. You just don't know. Both parties message the same way. Because it works for the vast majority of the population on either side of the political aisle. This is very dangerous to a functioning democracy. I challenge you to sit and watch messaging. Just the messaging. And leave the candidate And leave your own political bias out of it. And see if your candidate doesn't do exactly like the other. Both do it and both do it because it works. There are two things all of us need to fight against in becoming educated voters so that we actually vet our candidates properly uh, based on the information that we can actually gather. The first thing online that we all need to be aware of immediately is this idea called the illusion of confidence. You know, as we fluidly and we think fluently move from page to page and article to article with ease, psychologically we believe or at least we feel like we're absorbing the information that we're browsing or at least the most important things we need to absorb. This illusion of confidence online, scrolling, clicking, scanning, Makes us think we're, we're these great multitaskers. In the business world, we've been basically trained to, to wear it like a badge of honor. Oh, I'm a great multitasker. Or in a status quo interview, people will say, well, you know, one of my greatest attributes is that I have the ability to multitask. However, let's just get real. And this is a fact. When individuals try to do two or more things at once that require attention, their performance suffers. It simply does, no matter what you think. Of course, some people handle multiple tasks better than others. This is surely true. Take someone from Gen Z or a millennial, and they can multitask better than someone who's not as fluently used to technology But studies are showing, in general, regardless of your age and regardless of your generation, we suck at multitasking, even though we like to think we are great at it. When we are multitasking, our cognitive skills and memorization decline. It's a fact. Stanford University ran a very extensive study on this topic, And it discovered that multitasking on the Internet, paradoxically, number one, makes users less effective in any one task. Two, they are less able to allocate their attention to an important task. And three, they're even more vulnerable to distractions than someone who just focuses on one task at a time. So consequently, even members of this digital native age, and I'm talking especially uh, most of my college students that are Gen Z and millennials, um, they're unlikely to develop cognitive control needed to divide their time between several tasks. In other words, digital multitasking does very little more than produce a dangerous illusion of competence. I know, I know, we all like to think we are supremely adept at multitasking and filtering, but really the studies are telling us opposite, especially when analyzing complex and deep issues. I would like to think that the economy or coronavirus would be incredibly deep and significant issues for all voters, but they're being treated like any old soundbite blurb in a portfolio of soundbite blurbs. I want to go one step further with the concept of how we read online and how we absorb content. It is incredibly significant because now I, I saw a recent Pew Research study found 89% of us get our news online, and that is a huge shift from the traditional media sources. So this is where we are educating ourselves in the areas of politics and political discourse And since we tend to skim very fast when we read, we become highly susceptible to a form of cognitive bias known as the primacy effect. Basically, as we read and we skim online, our brain determines the first few pieces of information they see as more important than the rest of it. So, for example, in a college classroom, uh, from time to time, pre-coronavirus, when I actually got to sit in a classroom versus teach online, uh, hopefully we'll be back soon. But uh, from time to time, we'll take a, a couple mainstream media articles, say from Fox News or CNN, and we'll show how, the, how they write the titles. And then from that title, how they drill home the main point and usually in the first and second paragraphs, and we look at the language and the meaning and the story and the messaging in the title and the first couple paragraphs, and usually it's unbelievable, stunning, unheard of revelations, high emotions, breaking news, grab the attention type hyperbole at the very top with the most impressive thing in the title And the next, the first paragraph just as dramatic, and the second one often as well. But often, if you have the patience to read all the way through the article, all the way to the bottom of the article, at the very end, we find writers putting a soft close. And it closes something to this effect. Well, It could end up being as terrible as I said in the title in the first paragraph. But actually, in the real world, there is still much we don't know until we can draw the final conclusion. Politicians and the media use the primacy effect against you in what you read. Mostly, as we're going through our day, we don't even recognize this structure but I promise you, the politicians and the newspaper writers and the marketeers, they understand very clearly that devious manipulation. And when they effectively deploy that, it can change a person's opinion. 96 seconds can usually get you through the first couple paragraphs. If you... While you're listening to my voice here, you think of your normal browsing history online. How often do you stop at about the second paragraph? You know, anymore, I don't read a political news article ever. If I don't have the time or the patience to read all the way to the bottom, I would recommend getting in this habit. as when you do this, you tend, not always, to get the whole story. Not the manipulative tactics of the left or the right to sway you from... With a, with a headline in one or two paragraphs in a nine-paragraph article, which is a standard size of an online print article. Um, of course, there are some writers and some news outlets, some blogs on both sides of the aisle, that, that literally are producing 100% pure hatchet jobs from the beginning to the end. It's just a total hyperbolic show. But, but you can't know for sure if you don't have the patience to read it to the end. I mean, if it frees up bunches, I found that it frees up just bunches of metal energy for me and time as if I'm online and I don't have the time. I never entertain political articles unless I can read it to the end. I've kind of trained myself not to do it. Uh, I almost never get caught up in the hype of the drama du jour on Twitter or other outlets. When I read political news, I always try and read the full article Consider it and then move on. It's actually incredibly liberating to do it that way. See, in the mainstream media, and I'm not necessarily talking about your local news, but really more partisan cable channels, print media, where you know going in what slant you're going to get. The primacy effect feeds that human tendency to remember the headline first, the lead story, the front image. As no matter what we read thereafter, if we even read it at all, the human tendency is to weigh the headline and the first stuff heavier than later content. So give it a try. You know, choose a political article with an over-the-top headline. Think carefully as you get closer and closer to the end of the article. Amp up your concentration rather than let it wane. Then see if the end of the article actually matches the beginning of the article. It almost certainly will not. When I do this with students, they're actually stunned. As many have never really read an online uh, – they haven't even read a standard online news article from top to bottom. And and most of us have done the same thing. Many of you today still may never get to the bottom of a full – News article. I mean, it will change how you read it and it'll change your perception of the people saying the things that they are saying. Now, let me transition to the final topic, and it kind of connects the dots. Uh, It's another rhetorical technique, it's used by politicians all the time to manipulate we all know the famous infomercials with the with the words ah but wait there's more as if the, as if it wasn't bad enough to have the illusion of confidence uh the the immediacy bias but now we're going to go one step further and bring in its final partner in crime anchoring bias so anchoring is a term used in psychology and it's describes a human tendency to, rep- to rely very heavily on an anchor or one trait or one piece of information when we make decisions. I'll give you a really good one that's just started popping up. Donald Trump's uh, statement, I am the law and order president. This is an attempt to embed an anchor If you've noticed as, you know, the the riots and the protests are going on and they continue to drive on, he started to amp up and ramp up rhetoric trying to create this anchor. You know, during normal decision-making, individuals, you and I both, um, we we rely on very specific information or specific value. And then that and then adjust that to account for, justify, minimize other things that maybe aren't quite as good. But if the anchor is in place, we'll kind of look aside on on some of the other problems. You know, Usually once the anchor is set, there is a strong bias that the value and ultimately the person will be accepted. So let's return again to Donald Trump. And I want to go back to the original uh, analysis I used and, and leave the law and order one behind. And let's talk about the economy and coronavirus yet one more time uh, and and their attempt to anchor things. So with Donald Trump, it's he is the one to fix the, the economy. He will repeat over and over up front. His economy was on fire pre-coronavirus. He is the only one to restore it. Despite persistent unemployment, yeah, there's massive federal debt. Yeah, there's huge cities and demographic shifts are dramatic. Um, yeah, there's 20 million unemployed. Uh, yeah, there's real dangers to housing and uh, restaurant industries having to shutter its doors, small business getting crushed while huge corporations are doing well. You know, so all of these things are against him, but he still believes if he can anchor the economy the economy the economy all those all those problems will be minimized if if trump can anchor he's the one to fix the economy conversely joe biden and we've been noticing and you probably have seen ads running on this he believes one of his anchors can be coronavirus i'm sure he's seen recent polls that are showing that the country's approval Of the coronavirus pandemic, Donald Trump's coronavirus response is not good. Thus, he's trying to anchor this position. The message looks something like this. He's steady. He's reasoned leadership. He's the one needed to overcome. Trump's too wild, won't follow science, but Biden has the ability to overcome, despite the pandemic like this has never been seen before. And yeah, you know, basically, if you look at Joe Biden's proposal, He's pretty much saying the same things that Trump said. He said, we need to increase testing. We're doing it. He, he, make sure we all have PPE. Uh, we're doing it. You know, all, all these things. We need to make sure we get money in the hands of small businesses to keep it going while this is being fixed. We need to find the virus, uh, you know, uh, a uh, vaccine for the virus. I mean, basically all the things he's proposed are the things that are already in the works. But see, if he can anchor that idea that he's the slow, steady hand. To solve this problem, he will set the anchor. Now, in presidential debates, let's take this anchor one more step, one step further. You know, when we watch these politicians, we and they return again and again to that primacy bias and anchoring of positions, it's one of the most frustrating things in debates for me. Is almost every question I end up yelling at the TV at both candidates. You didn't even answer the question. You dodged the question. Would would you please, for once, just answer the question? Will anybody answer the question that's posed? Why do they do this? Well, it's because they have very clear goals in the debates. They want to embed cornerstone anchors in your brain, regardless of the question, because they know if they stick, they will win. They don't actually want to hold an open forum, a discussion or a debate, or any in-depth policy analysis. that That's not what they're there for. And if we're honest, most of us probably don't even have an idea of the intricacies they want to score political points on and get the vote. And we would be bored if they would go that way in a debate. It'd feel like it's dragging on like an economics lesson. Uh, so they return to our natural human tendencies. They need those anchors embedded in the brain. Now, for the good news, you don't need to rewire your entire brain to return your attention span to prior levels or even take it to places it's never been before. It isn't that your brain is decaying online, but statistically, you probably live in an illusion of confidence about your superior speed-surfing multitasking skill which probably has led you to being manipulated by primary bias as it is likely you read headlines and maybe a paragraph or two before you jump to the conclusion of oh my goodness that orange man Donald Trump is at it again or you say Here we go again, those radical liberal Democrats still trying to collapse the nation into a communist state of anarchy and poverty. You probably jump to a primary bias. And finally, the candidates have probably anchored concepts in your brain, who they are and who the opposition is, that probably statistically at this point probably won't consider one candidate over the other unless some cataclysmic change occurs. That's dangerous. There hasn't even been one debate yet. But see, they've set the hook already. I would think the most important and critical thinking thing that you could do right now to help yourself to never fall into that trap is by thinking about what distracts you the most and by developing strategies to immunize yourself against those distractions when online. Don't skim political articles in 96 seconds. If you are going to read a political story, commit to reading the entire article and read more carefully towards the bottom of the article than the top. Don't listen to those 90-second political ads without an air of reserved critical thinking. You know, to do this, you need self-control. If you just simply can't resist Facebook notifications, turn them off. Tempted to play a little video game? uh, You know, set the device over to the side. Be very intentional with your political news. Be as intentional as the politicians that are creating those articles to sway you in one direction or the other are. I mean, let's face it, it is a high-stakes game. I mean, we're talking about who has power in the country. Treat it with the importance it demands. be careful to not get sucked into partisan cable news this applies equally to both sides of the aisle you do realize when you watch these cable news shows that their goal is not to deliver news by now uh, it's to get you fired up it's a, it's to get you angry and that's how they keep you watching you know i think the days of us being upset that the news doesn't deliver the news i mean that was that kind of stunned us when this Fake news things started to burst on the scene. I think by now we've pretty much figured out you're going to get, when you turn into Fox or you tune into CNN, you know what you're going to get. So just try and stay away from that. Or if you're watching it just for mere entertainment, know you're watching it for, for mere entertainment. You know, you have strong feelings on politics. I do too, and that's fine doesn't matter what side you're on, but we all need to become more intentional. We all need to become more open-minded in how we approach the political landscape. As when we do this, we, come, we become better informed and not swayed by the headlines of the day. We can actually kind of laugh at the hyperventilating online posts, the over-the-top headlines, and shake our head at the silliness of the bobbleheads on TV and radio. You know they need those anchors embedded into the brain then they can win it's so important to understand that the best state of mind for you to be in as a, from the poli- from the politician standpoint is angry mad frustrated upset At the other people who vote the other way. Because if they get you all riled up, fired up, and upset with the voters who don't agree with you, they win because it takes their attention off of themselves. You know, on a final note on anchoring, because it's important for me to mention this, you know, in rhetoric or in debate, this is not always necessarily a bad thing. Uh, when it's honestly utilized in debate, it helps drive home rational and reasonable and properly analyzed arguments. And when you're doing this ethically and honestly in debate, that's exactly the type of technique that will help you win a rational argument. The problem is when anchoring occurs from the illusion of bias and the primacy bias, because usually then it's based fully on emotion, and then that anchor is not really true, it's not really valid, and it's not really real. And this is where the demagoguery comes into play. So we need to know the difference uh, between the two of them. You know, there's nothing wrong either with just random web surfing Blowing off some time, blowing off some steam, just doing whatever. Checking out, you know, your social media accounts. But just be careful with the game of politics and that casual browsing. Because politicians, they're laying in wait like wolves on the hunt to influence your mind. When you are not fully concentrating or paying attention. You know We need to be educated, we need to pay attention, but we need to do it on our terms, not the marketeers, not the politicians, and not the media pundits writing online and in print. Technology does this to us. It lulls us into this false comfort of ease online, and we got it all figured out, but do we really? If we were becoming more educated, more discerning, Less willing to accept superficial slogans and sound bites, then why is the language, the proposals, presentations of the candidates getting more and more dumbed down? Why is it that people in the discussion forums and the online social media are getting ruder, nastier, and shutting each other off and not listening to each other? It is because we as a society, like sheep, were being driven right where the politicians want us to be. So if we don't demand more because we're educated voters, the politicians are more than happy sowing the seeds of dissension in the voters, pitting us against each other, staying very generic, very superficial, very aggressively blaming and name-calling the other side. For For as long as the voters accept this, stay at each other's throats versus focus on the real problems, the politicians on both sides of the aisle, um, they're set up to keep winning. If they can hide behind and direct the yelling of the voters towards other people, that screaming name-calling that the voters on both sides of the aisle are throwing at the other Uh, at the people who they don't agree with and the fully superficial has won the day and Americans, all of us Americans, have lost I wanted to thank you for investing your time today to listen to the podcast. I would love to hear your comments on the content or any other topic you may have, and I hope you will join again for the next publication. I generally publish new episodes twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays. So until the next time, hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week.